0: All right. Hello and welcome back. This is Colin Keeley here.
1: And I'm Brent Sanders.
0: We are two guys buying and building wonderful internet companies.
1: Yeah. And this <laughs> week we are talking about one of your, your new operating manuals. So you've done, what, half dozen of these so far? Maybe more?
0: Yeah. New operating manual, business breakdown, empire breakdown. I've been trying to, I don't know if I'm going to change the name because other people use business breakdown and that seems like people Google that more. So anyway, but yeah, Brent be sure. A founder of Permanent Equity and the CEO, formerly called AdVentures, which is a horrible name, and he rebranded it some <laughs> recently. And so they are unique. They do 30-year funds. So instead of the wow. usual five to 10-year private equity fund. So they have mm. no intention of selling. They rarely use debt. And he founded the company. So he bought his first company in 2007, and he didn't raise outside capital until 2017. So he's only been at okay. it for five, six years now. They raised the first fund, 2017, $50 million, 30-year fund, 10-year investment period. The second fund, fund two, in 2019, $248 million, 27-year fund, 10-year investment period. And we'll just jump into it. I can talk about his background. So background, similar to many other entrepreneurs, he started a few businesses in marketing and advertising. Most of them went somewhat poorly. The first one was a branding events company. He ended up selling it to an employee. Then he started an ad agency, which went a little bit better. Brent got introduced to someone that wanted to sell their business. And he decided to buy it with an SBA loan. And so for yeah. that first acquisition, he Googled, how do I do diligence? Like D-O diligence. So he did nothing. Nice. He calls himself like the Forrest Gump of private equity because he had no finance background whatsoever. But the first acquisition went well. He was able to repay the SBA loan early. And then he had all the extra cash flow. And he basically built out a small team to start acquiring other businesses. Um, mm. And so five years later, they had a portfolio of five businesses in a small growing organization that could like find, negotiate, diligence these like small business acquisitions. It was all self funded with the SBA loan as well. And he was mm. calling it the world's smallest family office. And so oh, that okay. was kind of the plan to just keep going on, down that path. But he answered Patrick O'Shaughnessy, famous like podcaster, investment, and he's a very wealthy family that invests in stuff. Patrick asked some question that was completely unrelated on Twitter. And they Brent replied, and they had a call, and then they kind of hit it off, talking about unrelated, like investing topics. Patrick flew out to Columbia, Missouri, where Brent is from and lives. They talked for 14 hours, and at the end of it, Patrick asked, like, hey my family wants to invest. How do we make this happen? And Brent's like, no, 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 no. Like everything's going well. I don't want to blow it up. I don't want to take outside money. And Patrick was pushing and he's like, no, like we want to invest. Like what would it take to have you accept outside capital? Like you design the structure the terms and we'll figure it out from there. And that's how they ended up in this kind of unique structure, which we could go through. But the whole goal was to align everyone's long-term incentives and like Kind of have this unique long-term approach which is why i sure. wanted to do a breakdown of this is like there's all these different ways to do long-term holding and they're one of the premier ones of doing it whether it's right or wrong or whether you want to do it that way
1: so before we dive into it obviously they we know they started a, a fund right so i guess did he indicate why he wanted to even set up a fund or is there were there other options that you could go that's like go because right it's like that is a that's sort of the the capsule in which so many people operate and we've explored this in in different realms and in ways and there's there's this that but it, there's always this thing we came back to it's like well you don't want to be weird but to his point he's like he didn't even really want to do it so he could be weird so i was curious like how did they end up on a fund
0: so like, why raise outside money at all is a fair question. Like, you could just continue to compound at a high rate. We deal with this as well. Like, we don't have to keep raising outside capital. We could just do that. But it's leveraged. Like, you could move way faster. You could buy bigger businesses. You could buy more businesses. So that was kind of, like, why he was pushed to do it. And he wanted to work with these partners, these families to do that. And then why do this kind of unique approach? He talks all the benefits of it, but it's basically, like, you can do the usual short-term thing where you buy, you kind of improve things and flip it. But the worst thing is just that, or all the private equity people kind of acknowledge is what your best companies are, and you just hate to sell them. Like you have to sell them to realize your return. But if you be way better, if you could just hold those for a much longer period of time and make the improvements like that are worthwhile and pay dividends over like 10, 20 plus years, which is what he wants these family-run businesses to be, basically.
1: I feel like there's the typical two and 20, right? And so it gets into this concept of of the fees, which is you hear people doing every permutation of two and 20, but that's like the, the typical boilerplate, don't be weird terms that people come with. And then there's this thing of like, well, what are you getting for your fees? And Do you optimize for carry? And so it it seems like they were doing something unique there. You want to talk about that?
0: Yeah, the fees are probably the weirdest thing, actually, with the way the fund is structured. It's a two and 20 standard. They don't take any management fees. So they have zero fees outside of carry, no deal fees, no financing fees, no portfolio company fees. So the obvious question is like, how do you pay the bills? Like you have a team, Mm -hmm. how do you compensate them? Especially when there's no carry in the traditional sense of there's no exit, like down the line. And so they Mm -hmm. take a percentage of cash. So they look at the cash available for distribution and measure it against the equity invested. And assuming it crosses at least the 15% gross return, so an above average cash on cash return, permanent equity takes a percentage of that. And Mm -hmm. it seems like they take a higher percentage, the better things are performing. And that's that's how they pay the bills. That's how they pay everything. So I don't know if it was quarterly or what, but... That's, that's how they're distributing out capital.
1: Interesting. So this all works as long as everything continues to, to cash flow well. And it seems like that's part of their criteria, right? It's like, they're not doing turnarounds. They're not doing anything. That's like, has the even potential or front potential of not having strong cash flows.
0: Yeah. And the other part here is they don't use debt. So they the cash doesn't have to be reserved for like a big debt service or anything. Right. But yeah, it is weird. And it's not the traditional way of like a holding company in the Constellation style of like, keep all the money in the company, redeploy it. It's Mm -hmm. they're constantly putting out dividends or distributions to the investors, which isn't Mm. the most tax efficient route. But I guess if you were just a single like family that owns some small business, this is effectively how you would operate. So it's continuing to operate and be compensated in that way, but not the most tax efficient way to go about it.
1: Can we switch gears and talk about the portfolio for a moment? Cause I think this, in, in my mind, I took a look at the portfolio and I was like, huh, it makes sense. Cause, but it's also pretty unsexy, right? Like what's in the portfolio currently. I was looking on the site a minute ago and what is it? There's like a, so it started, I believe in, in the AdWord AdWorld. ad world. I think that was, he was saying his first acquisition. So I'm assuming it's media cross and then there's sort of these aerospace parts, a manufacturing certification or, or, or certified repair of FAA certified repair pools, matchmaking, architectural glass, and a consumer products manufacturer of pool lighting and inflatables and, and other products. So it's like, I I guess you would have to assume all these are cash flowing really well, that that's, I think one of their main criteria, but it's In these, these businesses that are, they're on sexy, right? Like there's nothing that I said that attracts your typical venture money or anywhere close to that, which I think is, is awesome, right? Like that's just proof positive that it's the riches are in the niches and these are are generally overlooked places. So it seems like based on this approach of like, okay, there's going to be no fees. We're, we're heavy on cash flows and that's how we're going to, to pay our investors and ourselves that. These seem to be businesses that have, I hate to use the term moat, but have like really strong defensible spaces and are obviously are continuing to grow.
0: Yeah. Brent's always good at speaking in things that are like memorable lines. So he often says, if you haven't gotten rich doing it, then we probably aren't going to. So yeah, it's all like these things have been cash flowing three plus million dollars a year for the last three years, at least. Terrible businesses at... The two that are mentioned a lot are presidential pools. So it's the largest swimming pool builder in the country, but they only operate in Phoenix and Tuscan, Tucson, (laughs) Tucson, (laughs) but yeah. And then the other one that's really funny is selective search. So luxury matchmaking. So like finding a wife or a spouse for a wealthy individual. And the minimum, I think is a hundred thousand dollar engagement. And some of them pay seven figures. So over over a million to go find you a spouse. And the one example he gave recently is like, I'm looking for a wife. A huge chunk of my life is playing golf. And so my new wife has to be under seven handicap. Go oh. yes. buy that.
1: Oh, wow. Well, hey, here's a reminder. Go buy your wife flowers because you saved yourself at least a million dollars on finding them. Yeah. Wife. At least you were able to tie the knot and have a child, so... You got that far without having to, to pay a recruiter, but it makes sense. I mean, super niche and I like it. I mean, so it's, I love that it's broad. This is just my commentary, but I love that it's broad. But what I'm informed by your, your breakdown so far is that that company is clearly very profitable and that's what likely attracts them to, I mean, there's no room for a flatliner in this portfolio.
0: Yeah, profitable, durable, all the things you kind of usually look at. I would say besides like a search fund, they're just looking at bigger things. And even Mm -hmm. like they're moving up market, I think they're looking at public companies taking private as they've grown bigger and bigger. He likes to call them adolescent businesses. So too big to be small, too small to be big. But yeah, they're mostly not integrated. Other things about them, they help out on the recruiting fronts, sales and marketing, finance and operations. but. They just ran their first, like, conference, like, bringing all the CEOs together. So they're much more in, like, the Constellation playbook where everyone's kind of independent. You can share knowledge across each other, but everyone runs their own company for the most part.
1: Interesting. Interesting.
0: Other interesting stuff about them. They are kind of unique they don't send cold emails or anything anymore they don't do outbound they really hammered home this like inbound approach of like focusing on content so they have a book the messy marketplace it's pretty popular they have a tremendous amount of writing on their website kind of educating the small business owner about selling they do a podcast kind of all the things in in this space i mean there aren't that many people doing that very well i'd say brent is one of the best andrew wilkinson you know, us to some extent, there's a million in venture capital to do well, but pretty unique approach in the private equity world. And he also runs mm-hmm. Capital Camp. So they're investing conferences for LPS and GPs.
1: Yeah. I think we talked about the, the last time they don't actually go camping, but it's, it's, it's more of like an outdoor setting in is it's in Missouri, right?
0: Yeah. In Columbia, Missouri. So that's awesome. where they're based. They actually, eat. so I'm going to Capital Camp that I'm arriving a day early and they like cookout is at their house. So the house oh, cool. is their office. They just like took over a residential house and they all work from it. So if you go on their That's website, awesome. you can check out like what it looks like.
1: Yeah. Very cool. When it comes to, as we talked about like the outcomes, these distributions, it sounds like people are just kind of, this is what you'd characterize in the past as mailbox money, right? Like this is people are getting payouts as they go and. The funds are thirty-year funds, but they're they're rolling new funds every what five years? Like, what's the the pace of this like?
0: So it's not super defined. So how they ended up? It's a, technically a twenty-seven-year term on their funds. Okay. And the way it ended up there was Brent asked for fifty years initially, and In one family office advisor said, "No, <laughs> we're not going to let you do that. We're not going to let the family do that." And Brent said basically like, okay, like what's the longest you've ever seen? And he said, 27 years plus extensions. And that's like, okay. okay, cool. Sold. We're going to go with that. And so <laughs> that's how they ended up with it initially. And they just continued with it, but they have 10 year investing like periods, but it mm-hmm. looks like they deployed their first fund in like three years or something It was like pretty quickly. So there's, they don't take a management fees. So they're not, LPs aren't paying. Like there's not a big rush to deploy capital, but it seems like they have a lot of good deal flow, at least they think so. So they're deploying it relatively quickly.
1: One thing that I found kind of independent of your, your write-up was around what they did. And I think this was from Emily Holdman, who I, I saw speak about kind of what they were doing with these companies. And it sounds like they, they kind of slow roll these acquisitions in the sense like year one, they really don't do anything and they do that in a sense from what i heard is like just a message hey we're not here to do the typical private equity thing we're not going to upset the apple cart and when we do start to get involved it's it's it is pulling special players in from the the holding company to maybe step in and do something specialized or i think what i heard him say as well was like maybe we'll replace a cto and that'll be like one big thing that we'll do but they're not coming in doing turnarounds they're not coming in and making major changes so it seems like the the strategy is to really attract the best businesses possible get the best possible outcomes and like get out of the way to an extent right i mean it, it, were, were you findings finding similar
0: yeah brent says this as expectations are lower when you pay less so if you pay a lot you have to do a lot so They Mm -hmm. definitely are not paying top dollar. They have this huge top of funnel and they're basically sorting people that want to work with them. And the people that want to work with them are much more around like, oh, we really care about our employees. We care about the legacy. And so their whole sales proposition is like, oh, we're going to take good care of your baby. We're not going to flip it and we're not going to make that many changes. So often it looks like buying a business, keeping everyone in place, keeping the team in place. And like, these are kind of old timey service businesses. So it's like mm-hmm. updating the website and people call us. We're actually going to answer the phones instead of not answering right. the phones. So right. it's like kind of doing super basic best practices as opposed to like the tech sector where the expectations are higher. Yeah, But yeah, they don't seemingly do a whole lot on their businesses. They just buy things that are cash flowing nicely.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Anything else you want to talk about in the breakdown or should, should folks just go go read it on your site?
0: The one other odd thing that I saw was traditional private equity funds. They have a bunch of partners and the partners are like, they find their deal. They run their deal from the beginning of like meeting someone all the way to like completion. And they don't do that. So they haven't scaled Mm -hmm. in the way a traditional private equity fund would by hiring more partners. They basically have it like a assembly line or like a, a operating company would do it where they have specialists at each stage. So there is like the specialist for marketing. There's a specialist for like LOIs. And so like an LOI gets signed that goes to like the post LOI person. And so it's like a continuous system of handoffs, which I thought was a way different way of approaching this. It's all done in-house. So they don't use like outside firms for the quality of earnings or whatever. But there's like the quality of earnings guy that does that.
1: That's cool. It's kind of like a band, right? We're just passing it on to the next person. Well. I mean, it, that's an interesting concept for, I wonder what that does to the stress of acquisitions when it's like there's accountability, right? There's like deal accountability for the deal lead or the person who's like championing this thing in an organization versus, hey, we're, we're a team. We're all going to sound good or all, we're all going to sound bad. And uh, that, that is, that's kind of a cool aspect. Any yeah, any takeaways I... that you, in, in studying this, that you would, would adopt?
0: So sourcing is the obvious one. I love their content approach to kind of scale conversations. So they've done that super well. And I think we should steal a lot from them. And we we actively are with the podcast and everything else. The structure is the big question. It is super complicated and weird. And so they were able to get this off the ground with like two big family offices and filling in a bunch of smaller wealthy folks. I think it would be pretty hard to raise money on this style of fund. I imagine if you didn't have those big anchors, but the big advantage yeah. of this, like a holding company is just weird. Cause you're constantly have to value the whole thing. And mm-hmm. if you're raising more money, you value it, you raise money, you value it, you raise money. This is just like, we raise the fund. Cool. We get to keep this for long-term and let's raise a new fund in like three to five years. So yeah. that's really nice. The baseline fees or like the no fees thing is super odd. I guess you, we could do it in theory. And then we just have to take a percentage and you couldn't use debt because or else you have very little cash flow to go around um Mm -hmm. but all that is just kind of unique and i don't know whether you take it or not i don't know do you have any thoughts around the structure
1: the one takeaway i would have is that it's easy to craft these i think you have to have an interested party that wants to fund it i'm sure sitting alone in a room and coming up with like, okay, this is the perfect structure. And then going out to market, trying to sell someone on it. Like the lesson learned is like, if you're going to do this, think like you need to be a in demand, have someone who is driving you to do it versus the other way around where you're saying, Hey, I have this, this concept. I want to do it. I want to start, I do a first time fund, right? That's a very bumpy, difficult road versus I having somebody with the funds that just wants to, wants to execute it and, and wants to kind of help you structure and structure something together. That's one interesting learning. The, the other part that I I like is the idea of doing little in the, in the initial stages. I think that there's something to that. Obviously that lends itself to, as you said, if you're, you're buying something that's lower in the market, you're going to have to do more. And so I think that's part of what we've talked about in the past is trying to kind of move up market a bit so we don't have to do so much right upon transition, right upon closing the deal where we've basically have to take the business on our back and brush it up, clean it up to do a lot more work than giving it a year and seeing how things go and not upsetting the apple cart, like keeping it. Acquiring a team versus a product is kind of what, what I would like to see.
0: Yeah. So they're buying something that's already functioning well and with the team in place and everything, and they're mostly keeping the team in place. The hard part is yeah. you have to do that and not overpay. So it's easy, <laughs> easy to find a great business and pay a bunch of yeah, money for it. Yeah. But then you have to use debt or something to juice returns. But so they're able to thread the needle. Maybe it's just like a huge top of funnel. And then you attract so many people that are such a good fit that they're willing to give you a great deal. But I think that's much easier yeah. like said than done, right? And you have to get ju- good yeah. judgment and everything to make sure you're actually buying good businesses. But you know, it's simple in theory. I think it's harder to execute on
1: yeah because anything that you see the nuance of if your business is doing well you want a good payout and as we know in larger private equity that's largely kind of goes to the the larger firms and unless you really 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 care about your employees which cash rules everything around me right like it's hard to 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 argue with okay i can get an extra x amount of money or oh well i guess everyone's gonna have to fend for themselves like it's capitalism, more people tend to go with the the cash and the better payout and less implicated earnout. But I think it's more nuanced than that. I'm, I'm generalizing, but I do think that there's an element of like, exactly. Like you said, I think you can thread this needle as they they're pointing out and they're able to do, and I think keeping it slow. Like, I think that's the other takeaway is like, you can't come in and like whip things around and like having, I would imagine these businesses started slow and Grew slow and are continuing to, they're growing, but it it doesn't mean they're like stagnating, but I I do think there's an element of like speed and expectation that seems very like wise beyond his years on that aspect.
0: Yeah, he's very young. He started this relatively young. I think he's just like 40 now. So he's been at this for 15 years or something. And he's, he's also, I mean, just the way he looks, he looks even younger than that. He looks like he's like 22 or something. looks ridiculous in his photos, but. The, I guess the other, <laughs> the other aspect here is like industries. So they are not in a super competitive space. They're like tackling these much more boring spaces. So they're able to get 3 million plus EBITDA companies without being super competitive. Like if we saw a SaaS business doing 3 million in EBITDA, like we're going to get blown out of the water in all likelihood because it's going to be super yeah. competitive. So that is just an yeah. appealing aspect of it, it, being in sleepier matchmaking or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, then again, like for me personally, I don't I'm not really interested in I'm not as interested, I should say, in non software businesses. It's part of like what what jazzes me up about the businesses we have. But I mean, I still like cash flow. I'm I'm pro cash flow. So <laughs> I get it. Like it it, it makes sense. So this is a this is a cool write up. So I, I hope you promote it. It seems like this one's been flying under the radar. The date I, on it, what that I see says November twenty second
0: that's not right. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not sure why that's saying that I got to delete that. That may be some issue with my flow, but no, my general process is I set these live maybe like a week or so before I promote it. And then I keep adding to it, cleaning it up. And then I actually write a Twitter thread and like announce it to everyone. So I'll announce it to everyone shortly. Yeah.
1: Cool. Uh, Well, thanks for putting it together and, and talking through it. I mean, I think this is, this is good inspiration. This is good. Like as part of your set of operating manuals, this is a, a good addition. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks. I think he's an interesting operator and he's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger. So it's been kind of fun to follow his journey. Yeah.
1: And so, and then you're also going to this camp. So you're, you're going to get to meet him, right? It's like, it's, it sounds like capital Camp's probably kind of intimate, small.
0: Yeah, it's relatively small still. And he's, I mean, we're talking about him like he's a crazy famous person. He's not like a super famous person. He's not a Robert F. Smith or something. So he's a much more approachable guy.
1: Good. Good. We'll enjoy it.
0: Yeah, I'm pumped. Okay. Take care, everyone.
1: Yeah, thanks for listening.